Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the RacingNews365.com Formula One podcast. My name is Michael Butterworth and I'm joined today by Dieter Renken, Editorial Director of Racing News 365. Dieter, thanks as ever for joining me. We've just had a fascinating Monaco Grand Prix at the weekend, but before we talk about that race, let's talk about the event itself. Now, in recent weeks, you've described some pretty awful scenes in terms of travel and logistics at Miami and at Barcelona. How was the experience on the ground at Monaco? So, yeah, Michael, I, I basically, to in order to get to Monaco, I f- flew from uh, Brussels to uh, Marseille simply because the uh, the airline uh, offerings to Nice were either very inconvenient or very, very, very expensive. Um, and ditto the, you know, for example, the rental cars. Uh, so what I did is I flew to Marseille, which is about 180 kilometers from Nice, and then picked up a rental car there and then drove. It was about an hour and a half, just over an hour and a half drive there. And then, of course, the same back on Sunday night. Um, and that saved a fair amount of money, and I'm not the only one who did that, and I think this is something that we are increasingly being forced into, uh, certainly until the airlines jack up their terrible, terrible service at the moment. I mean, when, whenever I walk into a media center, there are just tales of woe about people delayed by 24 hours, luggage lost, all sorts of things. Uh, car rental prices, absolute ripoff. I mean, I've heard of figures of 600 bucks for a Fiat 500 for four days. And, uh, you know, ultimately, we are a business and uh, we need to ensure that we contain and cut our costs as much as possible. And if it means flying to Marseille to do that, uh, then uh, that's what it takes to, you know, to, to bring the news to our readers. Um, as far as the uh, logistics in and out of Monaco were concerned, I mean, I, I heard some horror stories again on Saturday night, people waiting on the platform in Monaco station up to three hours because there were insufficient trains. This is all, frankly, um, a, a symptom of what well, two two factors. The first one is that for two years, uh, there had been no or very little live Formula One uh, for fans to attend. So they watched on on television. We all know that, you know, nothing beats a real thing. Uh, People want to at least experience it once a year or once in a lifetime or whatever. Uh, And of course, for two years, there was nothing on offer. And so now, of course, everybody is flocking to the races, coupled with the fact that the on-track action is improved. I mean, the FIA's F1 regulations have really worked. Um, We have this rich seam of talent coming through. So... We have this sort of double whammy. On the one side, we've got an airline industry that isn't jacked up or a travel industry that isn't jacked up at all. And on the other side, we have a massive influx of fans who want to go to races. And, you know, obviously, <laughs> the, the, the numbers don't add up. And I feel desperately sorry for the fans. And I sincerely hope that Formula One, in its negotiations with its promoters, turns around and says, hey, you got to do more than just pay us the money and offer a safe circuit. You actually have to offer a premium experience to the fans who are paying an awful lot of money. Now, that sounds like a very simple statement. But on the flip side, if Formula One is constantly jacking up its hosting fees, 
the promoters will turn around and say, sorry, but we can't afford this. We can't afford better access roads or better parking. And, and equally, in many cases, the local authorities are contributing towards the race of not paying the whole race hosting fee. So if they were in for 25, 30, 35 million dollars, they're going to turn around and say, well, you know, really, we need 5 million to jack up the infrastructure, but we're paying you Formula One, so we don't have it. And I think that this is something that uh, really needs a lot of work and concentration on going forward. Well, the fans who were at Monaco were treated to a, a pretty dramatic spectacle. We obviously had that big rain shower just before the start. We had a delayed start. There was then a formation lap behind the safety car. Then the red flag was thrown. Uh, a lot of people were suggesting that this was a little bit overcautious, that racing in Monaco is nothing new, racing in the rain is nothing new. We learnt later that uh, a power outage had affected the start procedure, which obviously didn't help matters. But Eduardo Freitas, the race director, he was only in charge of his second Grand Prix here at Monaco. Did he make the right call here or was he too cautious with the start? Well, I think there are a couple of factors here, Michael. First of all, if I may just make a very subtle correction to what you said, there was rain before um, before the start of the race. Well, yes, there was, but only because the start had been delayed. <laughs> the rain would actually, had the race started on time, there was very little at three o'clock. Um, there was a lot of rain 17 minutes later, yes, but had the race started, then the drivers would, of course, have been able to acclimatize and accustomize themselves to the um, to the conditions. And I think that, as you as you rightly say, as Eduardo Freitas, a bit overcautious. I honestly do believe that. I think we need to look at his background, where he comes from, and his his latest gig had been in World Endurance Championship, where you have you know 55 cars running at Le Mans, and your spread of talent, the spread of car performance is massive. You know, you've got at the sharp end, you've got the LMP1 cars with almost a thousand horsepower. And at the other end, you've got, you know, effectively road going Ferraris or Porsches with maybe 500 horsepower. You've got um, an amateur class in, in WEC, uh, you know, whereas in Formula One, you've got 20 seasoned professionals. And, you know, I think that this caution is actually an insult to the level of Formula One drivers that we do have, to be very, very honest. And I know that sounds like a harsh statement, but I think that one has to accept that these are 20 of the world's best drivers. They've all driven these cars before. They've all driven them in the wet and they've all driven Monaco. Uh, admittedly, there were one or two rookies who hadn't driven Monaco in a Formula One car, but they'd driven it in Formula Two cars. And again, at that sort of level, one would one would like to believe that they're able to understand the difference between an F1 car and a Formula Two car. In addition to that, you know, we don't exactly have um, 350 kilometer per hour corners, for example. And, you know, I think that what the race directors need to accept is that we're not dealing with a race where there are a couple of amateurs. We're dealing with seasoned, hardened, capable, very able professionals. Well, once we did get a race on our hands, the tyre strategy here proved critical, going from those wet tyres to intermediates and then slicks at the right time. Sergio Perez of the leading four stopped first on lap 16. Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen on lap 18. Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc again stopped, this time for slicks on lap 21. And then Verstappen and Perez did so for slicks on lap 22. Leclerc, of course, had been leading the race away from his pole position. He ended up compromised, losing time and ended up fourth. And as the race carried on, that was as much as he could achieve as things settled down and Sergio Perez ended up taking victory for Red Bull. So did Red Bull win this race 
or did Ferrari lose it? Well, they certainly won the race. I mean, I saw the check the flag come out for Checker, <laughs> but um, but ultimately we have to ask ourselves whether whether Ferrari very capably managed uh, to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, and frankly, to a very large degree, they did. That said, without being too harsh on Ferrari, I do believe that uh, you know Monaco is one of these, particularly when you have these sort of changing conditions all the time. Monaco is one of those where it is very, very easy to get it wrong, and it's it's always open to confusion. And frankly, the best teams have have lost at Monaco as a result of confusion during changing conditions in that very tight pit lane. It's a short lap. Communications aren't very good. I mean, I know that uh, the teams complain about the fact that radio signals between the high-rise buildings and the pits aren't very clear. They very often don't come through or they come through delayed. The GPS, the telemetry data is a problem. So, you know, there are all sorts of factors. And although Ferrari in this case paid the price, I do believe that any team could pay the, the price under very similar circumstances. Well, you talked about confusion, and there was certainly a lot of that over Charles Leclerc's in-lap. Firstly, Ferrari telling him to box, then telling him to stay out when he'd already committed to come into the pit lane. Then he was compromised, waiting behind Sainz. Does all of this point to a few organisational issues at Ferrari? Well, yes. Um, you know, Ferrari have had, um, and they do have a reputation for, you know, the odd organisational glitch, uh, the odd bit of panic here and there. But as I said, we don't know whether or not the data that they were making all these calls on was 100% accurate. Uh, we also don't know about the, um, you know, the calls, whether they knew exactly where the car was placed at the time. I think we should give them the benefit of the doubt uh, that there are these possibilities. But of course, the, at the end of the day, the result is the same. Yeah, he dropped from first to fourth. Well, Carlos Sainz in the other Ferrari was very vocal on the radio, overruling Ferrari's desire to have him come in for intermediates, saying instead that he'd like to wait it out and go onto the slick tyres. And he might well have won the race, actually, if he'd not been impeded by Nicholas Latifi on his outlap. So was he right to overrule Ferrari in that situation? Correct. You know, as, as I've always said, uh, if is, is F1 skulled backwards. But ultimately, you know, should the driver overrule the, the team as a rule? No. But when there are special circumstances, the driver is best placed to understand exactly how the race immediately ahead of him is unfolding. In other words, what are the conditions like, whether or not a particular fast se section has got good grip on inters or whether it would be better on slicks or whatever. These are, these are all little factors that the team doesn't know. Now, generally, the team does have a better overview, a helicopter view of what's going on. But Monaco is a special case, particularly in changing conditions. So, you know, in this particular case, I think that Carlos was correct in certainly uh, voicing his opinion and, and acting accordingly. Um, let's not forget that it is called a team and the driver is part of the team and you know teamwork cuts both ways um it you know it, it cuts in the direction of the team but it also cuts in the direction of the driver because they are one team and i think that they'll clarify it internally and try and try and work out some procedure but generally the driver should not overrule the team but you know there are always exceptions and looking at the other side of that coin then, should Leclerc have maybe been more assertive on the radio and stayed out instead of coming in when his team asked him to? Well, I think the, the record proves to exactly that. You know, uh, Carlos was second and Charles was fourth.
Does this create a bit of a dangerous precedent then for Ferrari where future strategy calls might be ignored? Because surely that's not what Ferrari want or need. No, of course not. But ultimately, we've got to accept that this race was exceptional on an exceptional circuit under exceptional circumstances. And, uh, you know, I think that they'll clarify going forward exactly what the situation is. And I think the drivers are intelligent enough to realize that most times the team does have um, a better overview than they do, but that there will always be exceptions. And I think that, you know, every rule, there is an exception to every rule. And I think that um, this should be seen against that light. Well, let's talk about Red Bull now, because they were the big winners from Monaco, finishing first and third after having qualified third and fourth. Sergio Perez taking his third career win. He obviously really enjoyed that one. He seemed the faster of the two Red Bulls all throughout the Monaco weekend. Do you think he's genuinely in the title fight now this year? Um, he's certainly a contender. Absolutely. I believe that, that Checo is driving better than at any stage in his career. I look at Checo in the paddock and I sort of see a very, very happy, comfortable guy, a guy who's just sort of quietly confident. There's no bravado about Checo. There never has been. But there's a sort of quiet confidence in him. You know, little known is that uh, he had a, a third child between the Miami and uh, Spanish Grand Prix. Um, his wife, uh, Carla, Carla, gave birth to a, a son that called Emilio. So he's got two boys and a girl now. Um, he's in a very, very happy place. I believe that the contract um, to stay with Red Bull for another year has been agreed, that effectively they're looking for a pen. Um, I think that should be announced before before Baku. Certainly, uh, my information from team sources is that. Uh, so um, let's let's see what happens. But I think that he's certainly a contender. And I think that Christian Horner will need to balance the demands of his two drivers very carefully going forward. On Sunday night, I said to him, you know, Christian, your job as team principal is to win the Constructors' Championship. If the two drivers are first and second in the championship, it actually makes no difference which one of them is first, in other words, world champion, and who's the runner-up. And I said, how do you handle this? Who would you prefer? And he said, they're both Red Bull drivers. He said, frankly, I don't care which one of them is world champion as long as we win the, the Constructors' Championship. And I think this points to the fact that he's got some very tricky management coming up. I know that uh, in the Fettel Weber, uh, Sebastian Fettel, Mark Weber days, he was, he was tested a few times when it came to that. And it'll be interesting to see how he handles this one. Well, the dynamic between Checo and Max certainly seems very good at the moment. Perez now, he's in his second season at Red Bull. He, it feels to me like he's closer to Verstappen than he was last year. Is that just a consequence of having one year under his belt at Red Bull and knowing the team and knowing the car a little more? Or is it a consequence of the change in regulations? Because we've seen in recent years, Alex Albon and Pierre Gasly really, really struggled to get the best of a car that had been designed around Max. Is the fact that Checo's closer this year, is that a consequence of the fact that the teams are starting with a brand new design philosophy and a blank sheet of paper? Um, I think that there are various factors that come into play. And the one factor that, that is not discussed that much is the tyres. And, you know, Checo is known as the tyre whisperer. Well, the tyres are completely different to previously. They do have different behaviour. They're obviously 18-inch versus 13-inch diameter. Uh, they've got different sidewall constructions. 
they react differently with a car, which is a ground effect car, as opposed to a top-down uh, aerodynamic design. All these factors, I think, have influenced it. I think that he's got to grips, if you'll excuse the pun, better with the modern uh, or the new generation of cars than Max has, for example. You know, we've seen him outperform Max on numerous occasions this year, which was unexpected coming into the season. Uh, we've seen something very similar at Mercedes, for example, where George Russell has got on better with the new era cars than, than Lewis has. And, um, you know, I think that certain drivers battle to customize themselves with some of the quirks of these new generation cars. And I think that, that Checo's just done that better. And then again, coupled with this newfound confidence, coupled with the, um, the very happy domestic environment that he finds himself in. Um, yeah, I, I really think that he's at the moment uh, a, a very strong contender. And I think Max should be worried. How do you think Max will be feeling after Monaco? Because he looked like he was the second best Red Bull driver all weekend long. He only qualified fourth. Obviously, he might have been a little bit quicker if the flag hadn't been flown towards the end of Q3. But he was certainly second best to Perez. And yet he's still come out from this weekend, having extended his championship lead. Is this just one of those weekends where you've just got to take it on the chin, realise that you maybe weren't at your best and then come back stronger and try to win the next one? Of course. I mean, you know, the, the season is 22 races long. Uh, we're a third way into it now. Uh, you know, there's still two thirds to go. I, I really don't, don't think that we should be, be writing Max off because of one or two races recently. Let's also not forget that had it not been for, for the DNFs, which were not his fault, um, then, uh, you know, he'd be way ahead of, of Charles Leclerc at this stage in the championship. So, you know, let's let's not be too harsh on Max. If anything, I think you'll look back on, on Monaco, turn around and say, hey, whoa, <laughs> uh, I've I, I got to pull my socks up. And, and, you know, I think we'll see a more determined Max uh, in Baku, for example. But what I do think we, we have is a sort of a wake-up call for Max. Uh, I think we'll see a more determined Max uh, in Baku, for example, and thereafter. And, you know, I certainly don't think that we should write Max off as a result of this one uh, performance in, in Monaco. But equally, you know, we, we shouldn't sort of have too high hopes for Checo after one or two sparkling races either. There's still a long way to go. But I think the encouraging thing is that Red Bull have got two proven race winners. At this stage, uh, Ferrari only have one. Well, Monaco's long been known as a track where it's very, very difficult to overtake, and this year was no exception. We notably saw Fernando Alonso holding up a train of cars in the second half of the race, uh, and he said afterwards that it was very, very easy to keep Lewis Hamilton and the rest of them behind. He just needed to put his car in the right position on the road. Does this show that uh, Formula One cars have outgrown Monaco? These are, after all, the biggest and heaviest cars that we've ever had in Formula One history. So was this an exciting race in spite of Monaco rather than because of it? Um, I think it was an exciting race because of the changing conditions, which led to, you know, drivers being out of position. You know, as we've discussed, Charles Leclerc in fourth and, and Carlos Sainz up in second, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and equally, you know, um, uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, in eighth place, uh, running right behind uh, Fernando Alonso, for example. Uh, so, yeah, I think the, the conditions contributed to the, the order and I think at some stage, all the drivers sort of turned around and said, well, you know, I'm going to stick to the, the points that I get for seventh or eighth place rather than go for any heroics and throw it all away. And I think that's why we saw this sort of procession. 
I've always said that, you know, the quality of a race doesn't depend on the number of overtakes. It depends on the close racing. And let's let's be frank, at, you know, the top four were running very, very close towards the end. And they were all pushing each other. We're all hoping that there'd be a, be a mistake up front. And there wasn't one. And I think that bears testimony both to the abilities of the drivers involved and also the fact that they are very aware of the fact that there's a long way to go this year. Well, looking a little bit further down the grid, somebody that we've spoken about in the last few weeks in none too favourable terms is Daniel Ricciardo. Another pretty lacklustre performance from the Australian, finishing well down the order and comparing very unfavourably to his teammate Lando Norris, who managed to finish sixth uh, despite having been laid low with tonsillitis over the past week or so. What do you think has gone wrong with Daniel Ricciardo this year, Dieter? We shouldn't only be looking at this year. You know, last year, Daniel also battled to to get onto terms with, with Lando. Uh, he kept saying he can't get the feel for the car, the back end, the front end, the brakes, that it was just little bits here and there. But, you know, he said ultimately over a lap, it sort of ended, in, added up to a substantial amount of, of time deficit. Uh, and we're hearing exactly the same words from him now. Now, possibly, just possibly, and this is something we shouldn't exclude, maybe Lando is just a super-duper driver who's far better than we actually ever expected or do believe. You know, that that's a distinct possibility, that, that Daniel really is trying his best, and he's just unable to get onto terms with, uh, with Lando. We've seen it in the past, as you said earlier on, you know, drivers like uh, Alexander Albon, etc., battle to get onto terms, Pierre Gasly, with, with Max. Uh, it's possible that we have a similar situation here, you know, that Lando is really a superstar hampered at the moment by a car that may not be up to the level of the Red Bull or the Ferrari, that if you stuck him into a Red Bull, he could even run Max very, very close or even ahead of him. So, you know, that, that is a distinct possibility. But on the other side, I, I do believe that since uh, Daniel left Red Bull and he joined Renault for two years, he's now been McLaren for two years, he's kind of been a bit at sea, uh, almost as though he realizes that the, uh, the hopes of a world championship are gone forever and that he's now just literally um, on a cruise and collect. And, you know, th that's a tragedy because the guy really had enormous talent. And at one stage, you know, he, he overshadowed Sebastian Vettel at Red Bull in the same car, etc. And, uh, you know, it would be a great tragedy if this is a, a talent lost. But unfortunately, I think it's pointing that way. And I think that, well, I certainly would be very, very surprised if A, McLaren retained him for next year. And I'd also be surprised if he does get snapped up by another team. Well, if McLaren do decide to dispense with Daniel Ricciardo, the attention is going to turn to who they might get to replace him. Now, there's been a lot of talk about Colton Herter, the American IndyCar driver, maybe coming over and taking that seat. But presumably it will take quite some acclimatisation for him to be ready and up to speed with Formula One and with racing on this side of the Atlantic. So who might they get to jump in next year if a seat becomes available? Well, we're all talking about Colton Herta all the time, but the one thing we tend to overlook is that Pato Award, the uh, the Mexican IndyCar driver with for McLaren, was given a test in um, in Abu Dhabi last year. He's due to have two rookie tests this year, certainly at least one rookie test this year with the team. So I think that if uh, an IndyCar driver does make the switch, it will probably be uh, Award rather than Colton Herta at this stage. However, I do believe that there's also plenty of talent in the paddock. 
both Formula One talent and Formula Two talent. And I think that McLaren are, are potentially spoiled for, for choice. There are also drivers like uh, Felipe Drogovic, for example, who's leading the Formula Two championship, who's come on very, very strongly this year. I know that, that teams are looking at him at the moment. So, you know, th- there is lots of potential out there. Well, somebody who came up from Formula 2 last year, in fact, the only driver who's a rookie on the 2022 grid, somebody that we haven't spoken about much in recent weeks, is Joe Guan Yu. Now, uh, he finished the Monaco Grand Prix in last place, quite some way off Valtteri Bottas, who has 40 points this year, to Joe just having scored a single point on his debut. Does he need to improve his performances if he's going to stay at Alpha next year? Oh, absolutely. But, you know, let's not forget that all drivers, unless they're driving at 10 tenths every lap, every race, uh, need to improve. That's the name of the game in Formula One. And absolutely, Joe needs to improve. I did put to him when I spoke to him in Barcelona that maybe that that point that he scored in in Bahrain, the opening race, sort of flattered to deceive that maybe he thought it's a a lot easier than, than it's turned out to be. Uh, he denied that, but I do believe that he he does have to have a look at his performances, you know, particularly given the fact that Valtteri Bottas is a regular points runner and, you know, has come close to a podium in recent races. So, you know, sure, Joe's got to got to pull his socks up. But, you know, Formula One is, is a harsh environment. If you don't deliver, you're out. Uh, he's had his chance as the first uh, Chinese driver to hold a race seat. Um, it's now up to him to a prove that he deserves to be there and above all deserves to stay there. Well, let's look ahead to Baku now, the next race on the calendar in a couple of weeks' time. A very unique challenge for the teams and the drivers, a combination of very, very long straights, very tight, twisty sections, and of course, it's on public roads. How do you think these 2022 cars are going to cope with the unique challenges that Baku is no doubt going to present? I think that the drivers are going to be in for a massive shock, particularly those with uh, cars that have a tendency to porpoise. Um, I did put this to to Lewis the other day, and I said to him, you know, you've got a very, very long straight. And, um, you know, that's really where porpoising becomes a major issue because what you have is the um, the ground effect sucking the car down until it can't anymore. The seal breaks and then it bounces up again and then gradually it comes down, then it bounces up again. And he said, yeah, he, he sort of feared that. Um, and the other thing is, I think that the, you know, Baku is a combination of street circuit, yes, but also a very, very long straight so it's almost a hybrid kind of circuit. Uh, and I think that's going to make it particularly interesting to see which of the cars have got the rear end grip, but also have the aero and the ground effects uh, right. I think this is potentially the biggest challenge. You know, in the past, what we've had in Baku is you've had two potential configurations. You've had very low downforce to get the top speed down this massively long straight. And then they've paid the price through the twisty bits or they've gone the other way and they've gone for high downforce, very good twisty bits, but then a compromise on top speed. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see who gets it right with these ground effects cars and, of course, the fact that we've got these 18-inch tyres. Well, you talked about the porpoising there and the effect that that's going to have on the cars on that very, very long straight. It struck me watching Monaco that Mercedes were once again struggling very badly with that. It did look in Barcelona as if maybe they'd turned a corner. They were noticeably porpoising less. Lewis Hamilton from the back of the field came through and did finish very strongly. So did they make a step backwards with this in Monaco? 
Oh, well, as I've always said about this porpoising, I think most of it is car stroke track specific. Uh, I think it's impossible to to predict which car will porpoise uh, on what circuit uh, because it's a, a combination of, of aerodynamic uh, configurations, car design, the track itself, the ride height they need to make the car work, etc. So it's almost impossible, but the pointers are that Mercedes will battle, but who knows? Uh, you know, they, they may actually be able to to drive through it and somebody else may battle. Well, Baku might be a little bit of an outlier, but we're shaping up for a title battle between Ferrari and Red Bull. Who do you think is going to come out on top in Azerbaijan? I would guess that on present form, uh, Red Bull does have the slight upper hand over Ferrari. Uh, but then again, you know, the, the season has sort of uh, swung backwards and forwards between Charles and Max. And now that Checo stuck his nose into there as well. Uh, Carlos seems to be coming on very, very strongly. So who knows? Uh, you know, equally, uh, the porpoising thing was totally unpredictable. Nobody predicted it as we came into the season. Uh, we could have somebody who manages to to uh, fight through this porpoising and, and also be in, in, in the hunt there. Mercedes, potentially. It could be Valtteri Bottas. Let's not forget he had a strong race in Miami, had a strong race in Barcelona. So, you know, I think that it's that's the fascinating thing about the season that there are so many variables and unknowns that it could literally be anybody who comes through, particularly on a circuit like Baku, which has got all these quirks. Yeah, Valtteri Bottas and Alpha were actually fastest through the speed trap at the end of the Barcelona track, that section with the slow chicane. And the Alpha's wheelbase is relatively short among the 10 teams. Is that going to mean that Alpha are going to be very, very quick through that tight, twisty section at the back of the circuit? Uh, potentially, yes, of course. Um, and, you know, let's not forget that Valtteri is a very capable driver. He ran uh, Lewis Hamilton very close in the past. Uh, so, yes, potentially there is that. But you've also got to make the thing work through the entire circuit, <laughs> the whole lap. And, um, you know, this is the big challenge of Baku because you've got this twisty bit at one end and then you've got this enormously long straight. Well, Baku usually throws up some interesting racing and I'm really looking forward to seeing how the 2022 cars go around the Azerbaijan track this year. But thank you very much, Dieter, for your insights as always and we'll hear from you again after Baku. Absolute pleasure. Looking forward to that race. It's going to be a cracker. And if you'd like to see more of Dieter's insights, you can follow him on Twitter at Racing Lines and don't miss Dieter's diaries from F1 Race Weekends, which are published regularly on the RacingNews365.com website. That's it for this edition of the RacingNews365.com podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back after the Azerbaijan Grand Prix.